expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Thanks for joining us here today in the Wolf Den. This is the I Hung Up on Warren Buffett podcast. Welcome back. Uh, we're here with the pack. Uh, not all of the pack, but the same old pack. We've got uh, Tank Sherman here. We've got Matiko, our producer. And we have got Carl, our sound engineer. God help us all. So we have a very special guest today, Soren Anandal or Anandal, Andal. In Finnish, we've decided that it, it means giant whale penis. So that story will come out in more. It's, it's, it's an amazing story of Soren. Soren has done a few podcasts in the past, but he's never focused so much on, on who he is, how he came to be, his globetrotting story as a child, uh, to where he went to college uh, and working at Kirkland Ellis, Switching from working at Kirkland Ellis to becoming a short seller, how he met Matt Weikert, how they broke up. He ends the speculation on whether they broke up over a hairbrush. I, I personally think it still was. They have magnificent hair. I'm sure they fought about it daily. But there are great stories in here that he has never told before, not the least of which, how a lawyer goes about getting a prenup. <laughs> So with that, drink them if you got them. God, God knows I am. Wait, do you guys have matching cups? Mine, mine says Columbia. Oh, so. I, I looked at it very quickly. You know why I, like, I got this? Because I spoke at Columbia. Oh, oh. you're so smart. That's right. Safety school. Safety yeah. school. Yeah. The, lowest, <laughs> the lowest of the Ivy I did. League. I, they tried to disinvite me the day before. Uh, and oh, was that that kid Josh Mitz? Oh my no, God. it wasn't. No, 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 Fuck that was with that Carson. Guy. I never told you the story. Oh. All right, we'll start the podcast. And if Columbia Business School comes up or speaking there comes up or whatever, we'll, we'll talk about it. But we have a very special guest today. And in all candor, uh, this isn't always the case with a fellow short seller, but my friend Soren, uh, and 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 on uh, and, 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 and we're so That's, close, Soren. I know your last uh, name. Yeah, I was like, you totally butchered that. Andal. <laughs> Pro- pronounce it. Pronounce it for us. Go ahead. Andal. Uh, yeah. Andal. It's very right. difficult. That's yeah. exactly right. I know that is that is Danish for whale's giant penis. <laughs> I, I think that's I remember came, that. Yeah, that's where Blue Orca Capital came from, That's where from, Blue right? Orca Capital came from. It makes all the sense <laughs> in the world now. Yeah. It's the double A that gets me wrong. I'm like, A-and-all, A-and-all. A-ron. <laughs> like A-A-ron for Aaron. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Soren, thanks for joining us. I, you know, you thanks don't, for having me here, guys. You don't do many of these podcasts, which I think makes you, you know, a great guest in and of itself. But the fact that, uh, you and I chat once in a while, quite frankly, maybe once a month or something like that. And I really look forward to those conversations because you're a funny guy. I mean, I, and I don't think you put that out there as much as as people uh, might think. Uh, your reports are very well written. 
and there's some humor in there, uh, but you're funnier than that even. And I think we're going to talk about you today and who you are. And at no point in this podcast am I going to ask you about your process of screening stocks and <laughs> how did you become so good at picking your targets? So okay. I want to know I want to know where you came from. And and even though we are friends, I don't know all this information. So I'm not just, you know, kind of uh, setting you up here. Um, why don't you start and tell us like, you know, who's Soren? Where'd you come from? Where were you, where were you raised? I think I know that you weren't always raised in the United States and you have a bit of a, uh, a globe trotting kind of background, even as a child. Uh, yeah, somewhat. I mean, we, so I was raised in Vancouver, Canada and moved to the United States for basically kind of the last year of middle school and high school and then stayed here ever since essentially are you canadian citizen or u.s citizen i am a dual citizen yeah you're dual citizen citizen. and a rabid vancouver canucks hockey fan it's bad enough that the red wings are in the same town as the lions and i have to love them uh let's not talk about them year this year detroit so i went to high school in minnesota so it makes me a vikings fan well that's really not far from canada opposition yeah it's pretty close Culturally, maybe Massachusetts, but culturally, probably the closest place to Canada is. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Maybe yeah. the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. You know, I was about to say the yeah. Uppers, right? Uper. Yeah, I went to I went to college my first year at Northern Michigan University in uh, the Upper Peninsula, and that is scarcely part of the United States. Yeah, that just sounds cold. It's very I cold. Feel, I can feel the cold. And it's it's very Canadian. And where they don't identify with Canada, they identify with Wisconsin and Green Bay. And they call people from the lower peninsula trolls because we're below the <laughs> – Ma- <laughs> yeah, we're below the Mackinac Bridge. So we're under the bridge. We're trolls. And they're youpers. Yeah, eh? Uh, but you, you, grew, you went to Minnesota. You were in, uh, what, Minneapolis? Yeah, yeah, Minneapolis. But my what took you, you know, there? What parents, do your parents do? You know, it's interesting. My mom um, was in construction. It's kind of unusual. My wow. mom ran a construction company first, doing. And your dad uh, was a waitress. Yeah. No. Okay. Uh, my dad is in the airline business. Um, my mom, so she she ran a construction company first, doing commercial development in Vancouver, and then when we moved down, she sort of switched to residential. So it was pretty cool. I mean, like I, you know, kind of grew up watching, you know, a woman in Chanel high heels boss around a bunch of people on a construction site, which was pretty rad. Well, that's, that's, that is really kind of cool. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool. Like it's, you know, she's a real hero of mine. And then um, my dad was in the airline business, uh, which was awesome. And these, it kind of gave us the opportunity to, to travel a ton. And it's kind of an interesting backstory because they met in Vancouver in graduate school, but both of them were raised in Asia. My dad and Taiwan and then my mom in Japan. And so we had this huge connection to the places where they grew up and we would travel back a lot. And it was like a huge part of our upbringing, which is an amazing place. So your, your dad grew up in Asia and Taiwan uh, and, and they met in Vancouver. You have a distinctly non-Asian look to you. So I imagine your father, while he grew up there was not actually Asian. That is correct. So they were, you know, it's it's pretty interesting. Their background was on both sides of the family. My, my four grandparents were missionaries. After World War II, they fought in, both my grandfather and my dad and my mom's side fought in the Pacific. And then following the war, they kind of, you know, they, they had a choice. And one of the choices was, do you want to come back and be like a farmer in, 
in central Canada, like Saskatchewan. Oh yes, you know, please. And they decided instead to, you know, to go to to go to uh, like pastor school essentially, and then they became missionaries in Asia. And on my mom's side, it was it's really cool. They have this fantastic legacy where they they built a, an orphanage in southern Japan, which is still there today. It's oh, thriving, cool. and and we would go there as kids, kind of growing up a lot. And, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, it, really, it was a really good lesson because, you know, as a kid growing up in the West, you're like a complete piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then your parents would Don't like know send it. you. <laughs> exactly. I and mean, you're, it, it was a humbling experience to go spend time at the orphanage and it was a really cool. Legacy. Did you, did awesome. you go to school there at all? I mean, were you, uh, did you so spend time? I, I did go to school there on like kind of a, a in Japan for a few months in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. In Tokyo. Um, in when I was in college. Did you speak so, the language? So we had a, uh, I, in, enough to be kind of dangerous, although sadly I've kind of lost a lot of it yeah. now. It's one of these things, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it comes back quickly. I think I've got an ear for it because I kind of grew up around it. Right. But it's a tough one. Do your parents speak it? Like, uh, yeah, my mom does for sure. And does your father speak Mandarin? Because, um, yeah, he speaks Mandarin. Um, he, okay. interestingly, my grandfather, his dad was born in China. My great grandmother is buried in up. Wuhan. What? Yeah, wow. it's weird. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Yeah. So he, my grandfather on my dad's side was born in China. Again, son of a missionary. He loved China. And yeah. grew up there and would have essentially done anything to go back. What years are we talking about here? Just so I, I can put so, it in context. So we're talking about like the 19. So gosh, woman's I'm doing all this from memory. So yeah. I get some of these dates and facts wrong. It's uh, my truth. Fuck off. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, so I think like the pre, so he grew up like in the pre world war, II, world war two era. Wow. The, you know, he was, he was born, I believe in, in China and then he grew up there and as, As a Canadian the, or U.S. Chinese, citizen, though? He was a U.S. citizen. My dad, dad's yeah. side's American, mom's yeah. side's Canadian. So he, as, you know, as the Civil War was happening, it uh-huh. became increasingly yeah. dangerous for, right. for, for the families to, to live in China. And he, and he, at the time, I believe he was a missionary and he had to, his family, my dad was not born yet, but his wife had to go back and they did this really, you know, this is the church doing weird things. The church did something really weird, which was to make them make the, the, the married men stay in the country. And then the families had to leave. And so, but if you were a single woman, you could still remain and and with the mission and like be there. So that just, you know, flat out makes zero sense. So you can imagine what happened. He definitely like fathered a legitimate child. (laughs) So there is somebody that's an Asian version of you. There you go. No, it was also very Scandinavian. It was like with this other, um, but she actually, it was weird. She died climbing uh, mountains in the Himalayas. She was a mountaineer in the seventies and eighties. And, and, but it was, he had this incredible wild life where he was a missionary in China. Then he was a Marine in world war II. And as he was a U.S. Marine, he also he really wanted to, to, to stay there. But as the Civil War escalated, he was there's this family lore that he was actually the one of the, the I think the commanding Marine officer at one of the first engagements between U.S. communists, U.S. troops and, and the CCP army. Wow. And, and, the, and the People's Army, because as they were flooding into some of the cities and the Civil War was essentially lost you know, U.S. troops were kind of ordered to defend some of the outposts right. that they had, they had the, occupied. And yeah, the flight to Taiwan. He, 
Yeah, and he fled to Taiwan where where they lived and he, you know, kind of set up a church. He was he was in the foreign service for a while, which is, you know, as a family, we don't quite know what was going on there. There was, you know, he was, he was working in sort of intelligence and then kind of went back to being a missionary in Taiwan, but he loved it. He had this like he had this love of China, love for the people, love for the love for the culture. And let me tell you something, Soren. That could not have been easy in the 30s and 40s. I mean, there are parts of China, as you know, today in the countryside that are very undeveloped. I mean, no running water. Uh, it's it's not uncommon to see, you know, the, the children, you know, wear, wear pants or shorts with with uh, that kind of buttons in the back because they'll they'll just stop on the side of the road and that's where they'll poop or do whatever. Uh, and it, it does still happen on the countryside there. And, and the whole dichotomy is it's such a beaming metropolis of everything in Shanghai and, and Beijing and everywhere else that they are trying to move the country into it. But when your father was there, the whole country was that way. I mean, grandfather. Yeah, it was, it, it was, it was really, you know, it was even, you know, the, the, the changes in the last like 20 to 30 years. Like I remember for the first time I went to China, I think it was in 88, 89. So I must've been like seven or eight years old and we were in Beijing. And I remember like, there was no, you know, we saw the forbidden city. We saw the great wall. It was awesome. But there was, you know, we had to eat in a cafeteria and buy tickets and it it was so undeveloped. Even then in the eighties, it was just remarkable how, how, how rapid the the progress has been, but also right. The countryside is still very much rural. What do you think that was like in the thirties and forties? I mean, well, I think I, I think in the 30s and 40s, it was a it was it was a it was a, it was a terrible time domestically for that for for them because it was just a you know, there's civil between war, Japan, there's constant strife. Yeah, by, yeah. yeah, I mean, they were invaded by the by the Japanese. Right. It was incredibly cruel, and so I think that there was like it was high danger, but there was also a romantic element which I think made him fall in love with it, which was just kind of the the, the people and the culture and and everything, and he. Till his last dying breath, he he could never get enough of it. That is pretty cool guy. Very interesting. Really cool. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, kind of leads to where your father um had that Asia connection as well. Um Yeah. So my parents met at the University of British Columbia where they were in business school in Vancouver. And I, I think the story I don't know if they'll admit this, but I think pretty I'm pretty sure the story is that he had to leave because he was an American. And so it was like yeah, that yeah. happens a lot now. Kind of marry me. Yeah, I know. It happens a ton. Yeah, What's well, it, well, well deserved on our part. So y- yeah. you're you're in Japan and you've gone to school there. How did you how did you, you know, interact or get along with um being in a foreign country? I mean, you you don't look Japanese, so that obviously <laughs> was that a cool thing for them or was that was there a yeah, prejudice so. at I all? Mean, it's funny. I mean, we're about as Nordic looking as they as they come, but because both my parents were essentially raised in Asia, uh-huh. there's there, there's elements of the Japanese and and, and Chinese upbringing in, in right. how we were raised. Like I call my mom like the first kind of white tiger mom. <laughs> well, I think bit. I think that makes sense from like what I see today. I think yeah, that does. So it was really cool though. We loved it, man. We flew a ton over to Asia and just kind of fell in love with like, you know, especially like Hong Kong, Japan, just the whole region. And to this day, it's my favorite thing in the world to travel. So Yeah, I, I doubt it's your favorite thing in the world to go to China today, um, with your reputation. Uh but 
you know, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But I mean, uh-huh. as we get further into who Soren is, but it, it's starting to make a little bit of sense here. Like, you know, how you were able to really step into the short selling scene on, on China uh, and the, SAIC filings and reading those filings. It's not even just your law background, which I think we should talk about next, but you had that Asian background where your father could read SAIC filings, I suppose, if he, if he, if you really, you know, I don't it. actually think he can read the Mandarin and my, I know my mom can't read the kanji. They're, 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 they're comfortable enough speaking, but dude, for sure. The familiarity with that part of the world was just a, a, a natural, it, it just sort of made, kind of my understanding of the market and it, it, it came very naturally and just in terms of the research in Chinese companies, especially when we got into the the reverse merger phase, which is how I became a short seller. But, you know, I took a, a pretty, like a lot of short sellers, right? A lot of guys who come in, they're, they're, they're very different backgrounds and they take a very oh, yeah. circuitous route to the financial markets. Yeah. Like, you know, you and I have talked about this a little bit, like there's, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but short sellers sometimes are a lot of times are weird, right? Oh, I fucking because, hate them. <laughs> yeah, they're weird. Yeah. And sometimes it's cool weird and sometimes it's like, dude, I can't even. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. Most of the time it's like, dude, you and I both know. You and I have both said it. Most of the time it's just like, dude, I can't even. I just like, you know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because you and I joke about like, you know, sometimes you wake up in this business and you look at the other people who do what you do and you're like, how have I found myself in this position? Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's because I can't sing and I can't dance. So Broadway was like off the fucking table. And, <laughs> and then short selling became like the next thing. Well, maybe I can do that. Um, so when you're, you know, you, all right, let's just go back in order here because I mean, I, I just so want to ask you out of yeah. order. How do your parents feel like when you when you go after a China-based company and you have all these salacially true things to say, but they can be salacial at times. They're just like, it's unbelievable the fraud that's committed. I mean, do your parents like, you know, bark at you on Twitter and and say, how dare you speak about this country I love like that? Are they bag holders, Soren? Absolutely not. They're they're kind of the opposite. I think that, you know, you have to, you know, remember the dynamic there was, was very much one of, you know, my mom kind of from a very Japanese background, which. Okay. So she probably loved the shorty in China. No, there's probably no deeper seated conflict in Asia, likely and resentments than between, between Japan and China. And, and then my dad with his experience and his family's experience with the nationalists going to Taiwan, there's all, you know, there's all this kind of political stuff, but it didn't really, with what we do, it's not really, it, you know, we're not, we're not politicians and it's, it didn't really come up as sort of like a, like a political, there, there's, there's very little political element, I think, to, especially the beginnings and, and, and to what we do as investors. But, you know, with my parents, there was certainly a family understanding of how the world works. And the naivety with which Americans had towards China, especially right. in the RTO period. And me still, me included to, to begin with, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the naivety was never there. There was a very, there was a very sophisticated understanding, a, a, a understanding of how things actually worked in those parts of the world. So that had you hitting the curveball sooner than most, and that makes some sense. 
Uh, well, we can, yeah, we can get it. Like we, we should talk about that. We can well, I want to know, I want to know the college the thing, like, because like you, I mean, like you didn't go to like a no name university. Uh, and I know your mother was a high powered, uh, construction executive, which again, very, very cool. Well, she ran her own business. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, but okay. Yeah. Well, she was wearing Chanel pumps, Chanel suits and pumps and whatever. So yeah, I'm going to go with high power, pal. You didn't say she was in like <laughs> TJ Mack heels, you know, I mean, all right. So, and you ended up still going does. to Harvard. How'd you get into Harvard? Uh, besides being so, smart. Being, yeah. I think that we can kind of talk about the the transition towards becoming a, a short seller with like the, the, the journey really was one of where I, I really wanted to go to law school. And I kind of had it in my yeah. mind for a long time that I was going to go to law school. And, and I think it was, it's, it was a lot more common then, I think, than it is now, thankfully. But when is then? Know, when, then is kind of when, you know, we grad, I graduated, what, from undergrad? She's 03. And then, so like in the, in the, in the 2000s, I, I don't know, like, I, I think about this sometimes about like why I was like, so, you know, driven towards, towards that career path. I think there was a combination of, you know, a complete misunderstanding of, of what it actually meant to like practice law. I had this vision in my head of it being like half of like, kind of, a, kind of like the lawyers on TV or, Perry Mason. or Out for not justice. necessarily Perry Mason, LA but law. like, it, yeah, oh, that's a great reference. L.A. Law. For Are sure. you fucking kidding me? Um, Carl pulls L.A. Law out, and you're like, "That's a great." You're fucking Jimmy Smith. Is that is that what this is happening here? Jimmy Smith. What's it? What's the guy from L.A. Law with a great haircut? I've like been trying to copy it for like thirty years. Harry Hamlin. Harry, Harry Hamlin. That's exactly who it was. Harry Hamlin. Uh, um, even worse. So I, I mean, like, you know, the law, the legal degree, and to some extent, this is still the case, right? The legal degree is one of where if you're good at school and you get good grades and you don't quite know what to do next and you don't want to become a doctor. Originally, when I went to undergrad, I was like, oh, I'm going to become a doctor. And I took like organic chemistry and a lot of the prerequisites. And then I realized I was like terrified of needles. So that's not going to work. Uh, um, uh -huh. and, yeah, that's bad. Yeah. And so, but law was there. I was always on the debate team. I loved it. And, you know, there was this, this, this misconception, I think, that like the people that should go to law school are like the best three best arguers in a class or something like that. And, you know, in my mind, it, it was always something like that I was sort of driving towards. And I worked incredibly hard to, you know, you kind of ask, how do you how do you go to Harvard Law School? Well, you know, you actually you, you kind of worked your ass off like that was, you know, very much a. You know, college was just working incredibly hard because it was very difficult to get, you know, you have kind of have to do minimum grade amounts and then you have to get, you know, very well in your LSATs and, and tick those boxes. And it was so important to me. And and now I look back and I and I wonder why I didn't, you know, I, I think why I was a little more thoughtful about like what am I actually gonna enjoy as a career? But when I you know, when kids ask you for career advice, it's it's one of the big lessons that I that learned was that you didn't quite know how you don't quite know if you're going to like things you you think that you think that you have a notion of what's going to be interesting to you and what's going to be a fulfilling career but until you actually kind of start doing it you don't really know shit yeah you should go and, easy on your 22 year old self for not knowing exactly what you yeah. wanted to do but you you graduated harvard uh and you did very very well there and something is very interesting that happened to you when you were at harvard you were actually part of the Enron legal team when that, that, is a, that is a massive overstatement, but okay. 
is is that not yeah. true? You were not you were not in the room when lawyers were debating the fate of Ken Lay and Jeffrey Skilling. You were there. No, that's not really true. So I, I can tell you the story. My first my first summer in law school, yeah. my dream was to be a federal prosecutor. That is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh-huh. For me, that was like the the height of sort of this not only a search for justice, but this you know, the notion that you were in a courtroom and you were kind of sparring with the opposing counsel and it was high stakes. It was exactly what I was drawn towards. And so order. my first summer in law school, I got an internship for the U.S. Attorney's Office in California. And what was that like? U.S. Term. It was it was interesting. I actually had never lived in Southern California before. Uh-huh. And that was it was in Orange County, which was a little bit eye opening just because culturally it was so different. But Got, getting to work there, I didn't know this at the time when I got the internship, but when I showed up, there was a, a section of the Enron task force led by John Houston at the time, um, mm. who actually, John Houston, I believe, is, was Elon Musk's yeah, SEC he lawyer. Was. Yeah. Oh, and awesome. John was the one of the lead prosecutors. He was the lead prosecutor, and it subsequently kind of made his career, and he was fantastic. But he was working at, at different points out of that office, and you know, there was like two or three other interns and I was really gravitated, sort of gravitated towards that type of work. And so you can't oversell, undersell like how little, you know, I did. I think I worked on a, worked on a couple of memos, got some coffee probably. Um, you were, you know, oh, okay. Like, yeah. like, all right, yeah. fuck the coffee. Uh, yeah. But like, here's the throwaway line for you. I worked on a couple of memos. Tell us about the memos. What were the memos about? Was it was it about was it about Ken Lay and how he fucking knew the whole time and Jeffrey Skilling knew the whole time and and Bush and Cheney were gonna get them out no matter what. Tell me. No, what's actually interesting about that is that he 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 fell out with the Bushes because he didn't back the elder Bush or for governor. Um, really? And so yeah, and so Ken Lay was is he still donated to the campaign? What do you mean the elder Bush for him. governor? You mean Jeb? Because you no, know, for Je- for HW, right? Or was it HW? No, or was no. it was Jeb? Was Jeb ran for governor no, in Florida. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't Jeb. It was HW. HW didn't run for governor. I mean, he was fucking president. No, well, uh, George W. Well, his was son, governor George, of Texas. Yeah, the dumber George Bush was the Texas governor. Um, my favorite, yeah, I believe, his my favorite, the ran. father. The father before he was vice president was also a congressman. Yes, yes, we, among other things, and, and an ambassador to China, things. and the head of the CIA, and yep, you know, and the arguably the, the most so qualified before, president ever. But go ahead. I think the most underrated president is Harry Truman. But the oh, he, cool, wow, he, somebody um, I agree with there. So him and him and Ken Lay did not actually; they were not very close. So he didn't get along he, with Senior for some reason, Ken Lay. Yeah, because Kenley thought that they were going to lose, and Kenley didn't want to back a loser, so he actually supported a, a, his opposition candidate. I believe uh-huh. that's the story in, in a local election, uh-huh. and, and then from then it was just kind of a riff. Even though it was sort of Houston energy, and they were definitely ran in the same circles, right? You know, I, I mean, it's it's interesting. You guys say like Kenley, Jeff Skilling, like you know, we look back on that era, and, and I certainly did at the time of being like. There was this notion that this was a new dawn for corporate accountability. It that, was like, with Tyco, yeah, 
and sure. with Enron and yeah. with all these and Worldcom. World this is never going like to happen that. again. We've got it, it now. Was, it, it, it was the high water Waste mark, right? right. Which is, There's which Sarbanes-Oxley is now. There's Sarbanes-Oxley right. now. I remember I worked, I worked for a NASDAQ-listed company, and I was high enough up there where the comptroller came in one day, and he's like, well, I got to sign all these fucking forms now. And this Sarbanes-Oxley stuff, I mean, and, and this company never did anything wrong. Like, they were a total straight shooter. But the amount of new layers of paperwork to say that you're right. doing things right and not committing fraud, I thought meant fraud's over. That's done. Is that what you're saying? S somewhat. So the a little bit of a different tract was that at that era during the, during the prosecution of these guys, there was a sense that with Sarbanes-Oxley, but also a sense, I think in the larger market that, that corporate and executive accountability would now become like a focal point for not only like the justice department, right. but also that like exactly. people committing white collar crimes would go to jail. And, but you go back and you read the articles, you know, that was, that was, you know, people were writing these long winded, like, treatises on how this was a turning point in in mm -hmm. in sort of this accountability and in mm -hmm. fact when we look back on it the notable thing about the next 20 years is how few executives have ever been prosecuted and go to jail that's right and now there's no such thing as corporate governance like it doesn't fucking no. exist at all all you have to do right. is pay a fine in the name of a company yep. and the the joke is that a company cannot commit fraud. It's impossible for a company to commit fraud. I think J.P. Morgan just the other day paid a billion dollars, I heard. Uh, J.P. Morgan cannot commit fraud. People at a company can commit fraud. But the company pays the fine on their behalf, and you never know their name. Nobody goes to jail. Nobody admits Nobody gets anything. rung up. Yeah, that was the last one. I think Tyco was the last one I can remember. I, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's a... You know, the, looking back, I wonder if Jeff Skilling. I, I've I've always been kind of fascinated to to actually be able to talk with not only him but you know, maybe even Andy Fastow. Yeah, I'm going to try and get him on the show. Him, yeah, because Andy Fastow does speaking engagements now, I believe, in Austin. And there's a really good argument. I think the more you think about the Enron, that 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 Andy Fastow actually got away with it, that he was one of the, that he was the, arguably the primary architect of a lot of the things that, that really crossed the line. And, and, and he was, he was. Uh, inarguably and, and the government's was. choice to offer him a plea deal yeah. and pursue Ken lay. I mean, Jeff Skilling absolutely is, I think properly held accountable for it, but, you know, did they get it? Like, like Ken Lay is a figurehead, and he benefited like the most financially. But you know, Andy Fastow was Andy Fastow set up a private fund to purchase off balance, like essentially make yeah, off balance. The v, he invented the VIE. With, he invented the variable the interest entity, yeah. SPV, and and basically when Enron investments would look like they were failing him and through this private fund would raise money usually through the investment banks that were also hugely benefiting from their relationship with Enron. And they would purchase them in a related party transaction mm -hmm. at the marks that Enron carried him at the book. And then right. 
after a couple months or even like a year or so, Andy Fassar would that that private entity would then sell it back to Enron. It wasn't even yeah. the marks; it was the model. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't That's market right. market right. to 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 mark. It was market to model. As I mean, that was I think that was a Chanos thing, right? I mean, yeah, market to model for sure. Yeah. yeah I, market to you know just something that doesn't fucking exist until i write it down on a piece of paper well we've seen this too like in in the years since which has always just been you know you get this as a short seller where you kind of your ears really prick up where there's there's not a deep market for whether it's a commodity or whether it's an asset and it's so discretionary the valuation and as that becomes a larger and larger part of the company temptation is just overwhelming to for managers to just abuse that yeah so, well, so, if, if if the company can pay a fine on your behalf now and you don't have to go to jail <laughs> and you get to keep the money you stole, yeah, I'd say that's tempting yeah. for some of these guys. Yeah. So it was, you know, and it was the first time going back to my my internship, it was really the first time I'd ever heard of short selling because really? I, I knew the markets and I had, you know, a little bit of a background through. through were the prosecutors talking about the short sellers in this? Were, were the investigators? Yeah. yeah. They talked about Jim Chanos for sure. Really? For sure. Because, because if you remember what a, what a, how, like the overwhelmingly positive reputation and the, the, the media fawning over Enron in the years prior yeah. to their yep. demise, yeah. you know, it was rated as the number one company in America in like Newsweek or Forbes for like three, four years. And, and the prosecutors were, would privately, as I recall, they would privately kind of marvel at the, the cojones of a guy like Jim Chanos to, 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 to not only kind of figure it out relatively early, but just kind of, you know, stand up and say the emperor has no clothes. And what about her. Bethany McLean? Who, who, and the same thing, Bethany McLean, absolutely. Who, who um, just asked the and, one basic question, how do you make money? Yeah. Right. How do you make money in the black box? And so that was really my first exposure that there was this, there was this thing in the market called short sellers and, and they were not only had any, you know, they were idiosyncratic and they had these like iconoclastic views and they were, it was fascinating to me. And I, I didn't really, I mean, it's not like at that point I was like, oh, I'm going to go do this for a living. But it, for me, it was very eye opening. Um, and a lot of things were, it was a cool, it was an interesting summer. And then you went from there to where you were clerking, right? For some really important people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, so one of the things that, that people don't realize about the the court system in the United States is that a lot of the opinions and a lot of the hard work that is that is done and a lot of these fantastic judicial opinions out of state and 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 mostly federal court, federal appeals court and Supreme Court are there's this ecosystem of law clerks. And so each federal judge kind of has two or three, and sometimes if they're higher up, they have they have one more. Um and a clerkship is this, you know, it's a pretty coveted spot yeah. out of law yep. school. And it's usually a, you know, kind of a gateway to do those kind of things. Like, you know, if you want to springboard into litigation or confirm or, you know, it's something like an AUSA, it's a really good stop. And I decided to got the opportunity to clerk for a judge in Columbus, Ohio, um, Judge Marbley. And he, it was the best job in the world. Like it was really? awesome. It was the the only thing, the, the only job I loved, sort of being an attorney. And you know, if you if you can think about it this way, you're you're in a law firm essentially with one person. You have one boss, and you're spending a full year um, with them in really close quarters. And 
if you don't get along, you have a negative experience. But if you if you do get along, and it's one of the one of the coolest experiences of your of your life, and it and it certainly was for me. You know, Columbus is a cool town, totally underrated, and it was an amazing experience from a educational standpoint. I mean, if you can imagine, you you know, one of the problems with with not the problem with law school. Law school was you know people talk about negative experiences. I law school was amazing. I had a freaking blast. Um, I remember, you know, there, there's this impression of Harvard Law School that it's very cutthroat, that it's very competitive, that the students are encouraged to kind of view school as a zero-sum game between, like, between the students, that some will get good grades and some won't, and some will go to good positions and some won't. And that might have been true, I think, at one point. It probably was a few years ago, but it was really different when we were there. I mean, I remember our first day in law school, D- Dean Kagan, Dean Elena Kagan, who's now Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, um, addresses the entire incoming class. And people are really nervous. It's your first day of law school. It's like Harvard. There's a lot of pressure. You're kind of looking around. Everyone's really smart and accomplished. And she looks at the crowd and she's like, look, like, what does the person who graduates last in this class get? A Harvard law degree. Yeah. And you know, you could kind of feel the the tension and pressure alleviate from the room. And in that sense, it was it was great because it it was also just a bull market. Like it wasn't, it was there was tons of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it wasn't a competitive, it wasn't this crazy competitive academic atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You know, they had you had one test for each class at the end of your semester, and that test was you know, eight hours long, but you had no homework or even really attendance requirements for the most part. And, you know, you just kind of, you know, and there was tons of opportunities. And so it was, they almost like did a disservice, I would think, in, in some ways by, by inflating your ego to the point where they thought, you know, they kind of convinced us that, you know, we were little princes and princesses of the universe and that we kind of had had it made by getting there. And I think when we all left, there was a, there was certainly a bit of a rude awakening <laughs> that that wasn't the case. Well, I mean, for <laughs> you, you, went, you went and worked for somebody that, that took care of you and, and, uh, brought you up the right way. Uh, but that yeah, was a great and experience. And then you went to, but you also got to see how prosecutors and how judges and this and the practice of law works from, from inside, which was, mm. you know, a fascinating experience and a really important one. But, you know, I really noticed that, you know, my preconceptions about what it was going to be like to be a federal prosecutor totally changed that year. Like where I kind of pictured myself going to trial and standing up in court and arguing in reality, the the practice is very, it's, it's, it's a bit of a lonely practice. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of writing alone in a room. And it's yeah. not this, it, you know, and that was completely, um, you're very different from what I kind of, believe was going to be going to be the case but the writing helps Um, you today yeah absolutely did absolutely did so so you went from there you went from there to i mean how did you get to kirkland ellis that uh wonderful law firm that they are defending all all the people you attack (laughs) (laughs) so over the course of clerking i realized that that what I had previously believed was my destiny in this world, which was to become a federal prosecutor was something that, that was not suited as for me. Uh-huh. And the problem was, it was 07. It was, it was already the beginning of the mortgage crisis. Right. And I kind of knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. 
when I finished my clerkship, I, you know, I was originally going to be in litigation. I asked to switch to corporate because I figured that would just be a little bit closer to the markets. And I started the Monday of Lehman. So I started. Really? Wow. Yeah. So I got the last job. I think I got the last job on Wall Street. And I was really lucky (laughs) because I think if I had started even a week later, they might have said not to come in. It's incredible. That was the introduction to, 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 to sort of Wall Street, the corporate law firm environment. It was like, it was, it was wild. And it was, you know, as you guys remember, it was, there was a sense of, you know, there's a palatable sense in those weeks that, 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 that it could, was really, really ugly. And that like level of uncertainty is something that I think it's difficult to kind of communicate today to people that haven't experienced that, right? It was one of the most confusing times of my life. Uh, so, For sure. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I had come from the corporate world, and you know, next to a C level job, that was my next step, uh, and took this leap of faith, and this shit happened, and I just like didn't really understand what was going on, and swore that would never happen to me again. Um, and then where you're you're talking about like, you know, if you start a job one day later, who knows what would happen to you? Yeah. It's a, it's a tough existence. You know, Kirkland is a, is a fantastic law firm, but it is a very, very tough role as like a junior associate. It's brutal. Who do you hate the most there? Give names. (laughs) Yourself when you're working there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's, you know, it's this really fundamentally kind of twisted, in a sense, business model where you take all of these like very like highly qualified, driven, starry eyed kids from the best and the brightest schools. And then you put them in this machine and their job, especially as a younger associate, is to churn through essentially as many hours as you can on various deals and as a corporate associate. You know, the work is not particularly the work is not particularly interesting. And yeah. combine a not particularly interesting work with like an incredible high amount of pressure. And it just it just makes for, you know, a lot of unhappy young associates, especially, you know, the recent graduates who are working at some of these big law firms in New York. Well, let me ask you this. Like you've got you've got you should have some debt. I mean, I'm sure your parents helped you a bit, but uh, you're now working at Kirkland. It's high pressure. It's a lot of reading, a lot of writing, which, you know that really informs you and helps you today, which is great. But at the time it it was a fucking grind. Um, What do they pay you for doing this kind of thing? I'm not one to pry, but just fucking tell me how much money were you getting? Yeah. So, you know, I think as a first year associate, when I came out, you got about 175 in New York. As a first year associate, you're getting about 170. And this is 2007. I think that's right. Is that right? Am I like totally that's, God? I'm gonna be embarrassed. I mean, like, how did you survive? That? I mean, that's that like no, no, no. Associate. That's too high. It's minimum wage. Hold on a second. Yeah, I, it's above. It's above minimum wage, I believe. Yeah. Is that, is that like fifteen an hour? Yeah. 
No, no, no. Does, yeah, it, that was it, that's too high. That's too high. So you get about it was about like once it was about like 160, one sixty, one one sixty, one seventy is your first year. That's different. Yeah, first year. Right. Yeah, so well, but, well listen, but I mean Kirkland Ellis is one of the top, top firms yeah, in the world. Was, I mean, like he yeah, did, it's one yeah, of the top firms yeah, in the world. He didn't land it like, you know, whatever down the But here's but here's why it doesn't quite so when you're in law school and you look at that starting salary, you're like, holy shit, I'm gonna be rich. No. And what you don't what you don't really know is I didn't have any help anyone paying for law school. So you graduate like a lot of students do with like right. a 200 grand in law school debt. Right. And, and so you're living in you New know, York, right? Have, yeah. Yeah. You're living in New York. So, okay. and then, so first of all, you're in the highest tax bracket. So you take half that away. Right. You're left with about 80 and then you got to service your 200 grand of debt. You've got, yeah. you know, what, 1500 a month at least in debt service. Then you right. got your rent. And man, it does not go. It was, it was, no. it was, it was, it was, it was, it did not go as far as you think it did. Did you have a roommate uh, to begin with when you lived there or did you try and do it? No, on your I own? didn't do that. I probably should have. I think that like, you know, I was, you know, convinced I was like, Oh, I'm going to be a baller in New York. for. Right. Right. I'm knocking down <laughs> so, 160, 175, whatever. Yeah. I can, right. you know, it's yeah. going to be like the, turns out the math sucks. Yeah. It turns out the math is not fantastic. I probably should have had a roommate. Um, and, you know, lived in like a one bedroom. And then, you know, you want to go out on, you know, you go out on a few dates, you go out with your right. friends, but right. it was, you know, it added up really quickly. Sure. And that was a, sure. And, and what was strange about it too, was that it was, it was the, I think what makes it more difficult was the ex, not the expectations, but the relative, you know, a lot of times as like a young lawyer, you picked up the phone and you're on the phone with your private equity clients and you're on the phone with an associate who's younger than you who did like way worse in school and is making like five times as much money. And that, that's fun. You know, it was that to me was just like always just so eye opening. Cause it was like, there's nothing about my skill set or talent level or educational achievement that, that should be like, there's nothing, no reason I can't do what this kid's doing. And I'm just making, I'm working way worse hours. Cause this kid is giving me his what work. What were the hours you were putting in? Like, t- tell me about like, the average week, what were the kind of hours you so were putting in? It wasn't just the hours. It was when the hours came, which was the worst part. Mm-hmm. So you would be, you know, you could have a, you could have a, I think my first year there, I built something like 2,600 hours in a year. Um, it was, it was a huge amount. And, you know, you're, you're billing 300 hours a month. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but you don't bill all the time that you're there. It's yeah. actually, yeah you know, it's a, it's a, it's a percentage of it. And then, but it, but it's, it's, it it was not only uneven, but you had no control over your schedule. So it would not be unusual for you to be going on a date on Friday night, like seven 30 or eight, or you're out to drinks with your buddies or something like that. And then they call you and you have to come back and then you have to work for the next 24 hours because something came in at the end of the day on Friday and you have to get something done for the weekend. <laughs> it's ironic and that we're they, causing that now. <laughs> yeah, now I love doing it. <laughs> we're we're actually making that fucking young Soren yeah. come back on a Friday night and work for the next twenty four hours because we just dropped just, a report it, on their ass. <laughs> yeah, it was just miserable. It was it was miserable work to you know. I think that that was a part of it that was just really really tough. And then it was also like the incentive system is really skewed because you have a really high base salary. Mm -hmm. But at the time you get like a bonus of about 10 to 15 grand a year. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, your first year you work like crazy hours and, 
and you have no life, everything else goes to shit, you're miserable. And you know, you get a 10 to 15 grand bonus at the end of it, which after taxes is about seven, eight, because it's the highest tax uh, earnings yeah. you can essentially have as a law school bonus. And then after the first year, you kind of sit back and look and, and, and you're like, well, wait a minute. Like I like gave up my entire life for this. I'm totally miserable. It was an extra seven grand for all the work that I did. What if I work like way less next year <laughs> and essentially collect the base salaries? So, you know, and the way that they, the, the, the stick and the carrot that they use a lot of times with, with young associates, right. Is that, you know, they get these type A kids in there from school and they say, look like you're not on partner track. But if you look at the statistics, your chances of making partner at some of these large law firms from the place you started is essentially less than 5%, zero. And, you know, I kind of realized that really early on, which I think made me a, a, a seditious personality. Like, I think that that was, it was, you know, the notion that I was going to work and give up all this stuff for some, you know, some discounted value that the business would even exist in the future the way it does now or that I would be a beneficiary. It was just kind of zero. But, you know, at the time, it didn't matter how miserable I was. You know, there just was not a lot of, you know, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do next. And there was not a lot of options, right? This was the year after Lehman. It's not like there's a great job market. Well, what was it like the first times like somebody came in and like sat you down and was like, what, they had the coffee cup in their hand. And they're like, um, yeah, you're not on partner track. Like, oh yeah, it's exactly what it was. You're Some gonna have to work come in and be Saturday like, yeah. and go ahead and come in on Sunday. You're gonna need you to come in on Sunday. I, I think it was, you know, I think it was like that. I think the what, what did you do? Did you do you remember that first meeting where that happened? Yeah, I totally remember the meeting where it happened because you kind of get reviewed every year, and in the in the first year it was great. It was like, oh, you, you know, you're doing well people like working with you and then the second year they're like whoa your hours dropped way off and it was <laughs> like well you guys you guys pay me the same amount whether i work a ton or not a ton so me being miserable and then it was like well that's not the that's not the attitude that's going to you know allow you to progress and how and dare so, you figure this and, out so so you're direct about the uh, incentive issue you're just like you you guys pay me the same amount no matter how much i work Right. This sounds like office space, doesn't it? It sounds like the meeting with Bob and Bob, right? It, it, it really was. And like, and, and it was honestly like someone like farted in the room. It was just so awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was like the notion that some second year associate, you know, is telling a senior partner because, because in some ways also it's this huge validation for their life choices, right? Right. Like they did yeah. the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So if you're saying that this is not a valuable and worthwhile investment for a human being, yeah. It's very, you know, they take it personally. Yeah, sure. you definitely farted on them. Yeah. They're like, fuck you, yeah, I, was, I did that. It was, it was super awkward. And it was, you know, it was completely clear, like, basically from that point on that it was, that it, it was just in the wrong, in the wrong space. Did you go, go right ahead, from there to uh, Matt and, and, and Glaucus? No. So I, I, I worked at, you know, Kirkland for, for, for about three, I think three years yeah. was, was about the amount of time. And, mm-hmm. you know, over the course of that three years, I mean, first the year after Lehman, you know, I really, the whole time was like, I really want to transition. I want to, I want to do something in the markets. I want to do something more. 
you know, with a finance orientation. And so, you know, at first I was like, okay, I'm going to go towards a more traditional like type A path. Like I'm going to try and get an investment banking associate position, but you know, it's 08. They're not hiring lawyers laterally for that stuff. They're, you know, they're, they're rehiring guys that were qualified and gals that were qualified that were fired. Um, so it was just incredibly difficult. And, oh man, I remember I just, I did like tons of interviews and the interviews were always, you know, some of them were, some of them were great. And some of them were, were weird. Tell us, tell us, um, where'd you interview? Where, where was the best one? Where's the weirdest one? I mean, where's the one that like makes the most sense to talk about today? Well, the weirdest weird one for sure was Bridgewater. Oh, I've heard of them. The, the weirdest one was Bridgewater because they do, and they, and they own it. They, they own the process as being weird. And they think that they, yeah. you know, they pitch it as that sort of differentiating. Yeah factor which makes it an you know which makes it a primary driver of their returns that like radical transparency so they you know it was it was weird because you you know first of all like i'm I'm a a lawyer kind of interviewing for a for not not really a a full investment position but but something like you do sort of project based and supporting the the analytics team and you know you sit you go in their offices where you, you first do like two or three like prep interviews where one's on the phone, one's kind of in the city and then their campuses in Connecticut. So, you know, you do your first full day interview. And if, you know, if you can imagine as a, as a young lawyer, you don't get a lot of days off. So the notion that you have to do like a full day off to go interview is, is, you know, and this is the one of three, if you get it, it was just a, it was a brutal sell, but you know, you, you kind of get there and they put you, you know, you, you sit down and you, and they record you, they, they, everything is recorded. So the minute they, the minute you sit down, the minute you have your first interaction, everything is recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really important to their process because they want to say that it's, that it's, it's hugely valuable to kind of go back and, 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 and go through your answers. And, and so much of, so many of the questions are not your traditional finance questions. So many of the questions are like, talk about like places in your life where you were very unsuccessful and a failure. And what can you, you know, what can you do? What have you done about it? And it's, you know, you, you just, you, you want a job. Like you, it's like now, like all my dreams came true. I went to the best law school. I got the law firm job I wanted and I hate it. Like, like, what do I do about it? Like in, it was, that's what I'm doing here, sounds, dickhead. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty <laughs> Why good you answer. Say that? You know what? I, I'm telling you, they were expecting you to be like that. Look, all my dreams came true. I went to the best law school. I finished in the top whatever percentage. I worked at the best law firm. And that's why I'm fucking here. You know, I so I did say something like that. I also said something really obnoxious, probably to the extent of like, you know, they were like, oh, we'll we insist on radical transparency and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah. yeah. Well, I think they would dick. They, they, yeah. But they would say during the process too, they're like, you're not committed to radical transparency. Right. They would give you feedback. Oh, between God. I, would, like, I, would, I, I would get that right. job. They, they would, they would like confront you about like not being, you know, you're, you're not embracing the radical transparency. Right. They said that like, you know, your previous three interviewers don't believe you're sincere about it. Ray, it was a, Ray Dalio was, like a, was listening in at the door and he thought I, you were disingenuous. Yeah, he gives a shit the, uh, the, uh, about that, or maybe he does, but it was, it was, it was just a little strange. And I think the funniest thing is like, you kind of go through three full day interviews. And so I had like, you know, this is my only three days off in the entire year. And I'm like, holy shit, I better get this job. 
because this has been miserable. This is like my only vacation. And, and then at the end of it, they were like, well, actually, you, you don't have enough finance experience. So uh, you're not going to get it. It's like, dude, yes. you kind of knew that. Like, You guys knew that interview one. Wow. Right? Yeah. Fuck you and, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was just, uh, you know, I went through a few, like, I, I was just really, you know, widely circulating the resume and just trying to do all that stuff and nothing was quite landing. I think can you for- imagine, can you imagine this fucking free agents out there? Right. And <laughs> yeah. nobody's picking this guy up like, and what he's done since. And it just like, ugh. No, oh. yeah. I don't know how somebody didn't scoop him up. Yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was also a little bit on me. Right. I wasn't particularly focused and I was definitely still kind of focused on like the, focus still in that mindset of like, Oh, I want a job that like, well, you know, I can looks good on my business card or it sounds impressive at Thanksgiving yeah. without even learning yeah. the lesson that that's like not what I fucking wanted or needed at all. Watched American psycho too many times. <laughs> oh yeah. Reed loves that. Like he's got the, uh, your the compliment American was psycho- sufficient Lewis. <laughs> yeah. The- <laughs> Reed, Reed, Reed loves that movie and he comes in with this business card thing and like the, with with the weight of it. Bone uh, color, yeah. Bone. It's cilian rail. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you believe guys, you I guys. believe it's called pale nimbus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The bone or pale nimbus. All right. So, Soren, tell me, is it true? You ended up like starting a firm called Galakis with it's Matt, terrible name with yeah. with Matt Weikert. Is it true that you two met on Christian Mingle? <laughs> 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 e-harmony uh oh, it was e-harmony was it e- e-harmony. <laughs> okay that is awesome i knew that was yeah. true i knew so, it was true so maddie and i went to school together matt and i uh played soccer together at uh U chicago and and we so the you knew yeah. him from high school no from college undergrad oh undergrad, undergrad. i see i see uh okay so you knew matt from college and he was working for the most reputable investment bank to ever grace the existence of this planet, Roth Capital. Uh, and how did that whole thing happen? So it wasn't Christian Mingle. How did you guys get together and start Sea Slug? <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean that's what Glockus is, right? A Sea Slug. Like I looked at it; it was a great. First of all, it's very fucking hard to spell, so that sucks. For, it's even harder to say. I, I think that there's a story here which we can get into about go, how we give it. it. Do but it. But the so, so we go. You know, the University of Chicago education very heavy emphasis on the classics, a lot of the Greek stuff. So we wanted to pick like a Greek mythological figure, and and Matt was really into sea creatures, and so we we kind of rotated through. Man, there were some awful names on the table. Uh-huh. Um, I think like man, I've. I've I got to remember some of the choices, like, believe me, in a, in a, in a really, in a and, really and, deep And you field, picked the worst one. The okay. One. We know where it ends. You picked the worst one. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's very colorful though. You already said it's a terrible name. I'm not, I'm not. No, it's I'm a terrible right. name, but like, you know, I think like one of the ones we had was, oh man, like Proteus was, is a, is a, is a Greek shape-shifting sea god. That, that would have been um, decent. Yeah, he's he, Proteus uh, is like the herder of Poseidon seals, I think. Right. <laughs> and and we we didn't we Poseidon didn't want to go with seals. that one because Proteus 
yeah. knows the past, present, and future, but he doesn't say anything. And that's one of the reasons that the Greeks are always frustrated with them. So it didn't really seem fitting as an act of a short seller. Um, there was, oh my God, like Charybdis was a choice. Like, gee, that, that's another just terrible one. Charybdis. Um, <laughs> that sounds like something, you know, you get after a one night stand. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly Holy right. Holy shit, man. Matt, I went out and I ended up with Charybdis. Charybdis. <laughs> A little penicillin will clear that up. Yeah, a little psyllin. Get a little psyllin. Yeah. All right, so you ended up with glaucus, which is actually a, yeah. a colorful I, sea I went slug. to the doctor, they cured the charybdis. But how, to, uh... how did you, how did you like, Matt decided to leave Roth for whatever reason, uh, and you decided you were leaving Kirkland Ellis or whatever you went into after that, and what, what made the two of you say, hey, there's a business here exposing so, fraud? So, so this is, you know, this is where, you know, for sure, Matt deserves, deserves the credit. So I, you know, at the time I'm interviewing mm-hmm. all these places and I, and I can't get a job because, you know, at the end of the day, they're always saying, you know, the feedback is always like, we don't believe that you can actually do financial work and, and you're just a, you know, you're just a corporate lawyer. And so Matt started, and I started talking about, you know, I think the real sort of seismic event was Carson's uh, Orient paper. So we had been talking that. Yeah, it was big for me too. Yeah, we were talking that summer about what to do. And, you know, he was leaving Roth because the, the Chinese business had not only dried up, but he was just burnt out on it, I think. And, you know, he was talking about what we could do you know, to kind of work together. And, you know, we had talked about starting a business and what we would do. And then, you know, Carson's Orient report comes out and it's just, just, it was a pretty like earth shattering moment where, you know, for Matt, I think Matt was still actually at Roth he was. at the time. He was, yeah. as he, as he tells the story that I've heard, he was. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so Matt has basically just spent years, you know, selling these stocks, essentially uh-huh. these RTOs to the yeah. market. And the Carson report comes in and for OT or for uh, Orient paper. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, he would know a lot better than I do, but, but the way that I've heard the story was there was just kind of panic at Roth that, that this was a, yeah. you know, represented sort of a major and, and it really did like yeah. a, like a, like a sea change essentially in the market. And, and to and be fair, to- I'm sure. Global Hunter and Rodman and Renshaw and everybody else was having the same kind of problem with it, right? I mean, like it's wow, what's well, going for on? sure, yeah, for sure. And there's a you know there's a healthy debate you can get in about how much you know the American investment banks knew or should have a lot have known that were yeah, but but certainly Orient Paper, you know it it for for us it more introduced the notion that like wait a minute. You know, here was this independent market commentator. There was this guy that was a short seller, and you know, he had done sort of primary due diligence, and he published his report, and we were watching that. And you know, in some ways, you know, in some ways, as short sellers, we owe a ton of. You know, I don't know. You know, this is a fascinating question for you too, but I don't know who you, who who you would think that we owe a lot to. You know, in some ways, Andrew Left probably was one of the first 
you know, guys to really blaze the trail, I think with the, with sort of the internet, sort of the activist in reaching directly out to people. Um, but you know, the, on a proximate basis for sure, it was that the Orient paper report. Um, so we watched it over the course of the summer. Then I think the next one they did was, I think Carson might've done Rhino next. He did. And then, yeah. yeah. And, and Orient paper didn't necessarily, I mean, it, 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 he was completely correct. And, but there was so much like clash in the market. I remember. Well, first of all, it was the first one, right? I, I, it was I th- the first one. Yep. I think that dropped while Rodman was running a conference. I, I believe I was at a Rodman conference. In my mind, this is how I remember it. Uh, yeah. that there was a Rodman conference going on at that time. And, you know, we thought the China RTOs, you know, were, were great. They were making a lot of money. And I was sure Carson was wrong, by the way, about Orient Paper. Maj was kind of getting some inbound traffic saying some of these companies were frauds that we just like, like fucking killed it on. CAG C um, was like 10 times and even L&L, which eventually you and then we finished them off, blew them out, which colossal fraud uh, made a lot of money on. And I just like, you know, it's like the world I told you I came from where my comptroller comes in and is like, oh, you know, we never committed fraud anyway. We never did anything wrong to begin with. But like now, with all of these regulations they're throwing in front of us, Sarbanes-Oxley and whatever, this can't happen. It's not even possible. So we didn't realize that none of that applied to them. We didn't know. I didn't know anyway. So I, I thought Carson yeah. was spooking the market. I think a lot of other people did too. So the first one, well, it had an effect the next day as Carson tells it, and, and it did. It actually did. A lot of us were like, yeah, you know, this is going to shake out to be some guy comes out here and tries to make a few bucks and he's going to jail. And I think you and I both have to say right now, too, Soren, when we're, as we're actually joining in on this, and I came back and after I sent a team to China to prove Carson wrong, and they came back and said, well, he is wrong. He's understating the problem. You know, fraud's way worse than he <laughs> says it is. Uh, and it's like, okay, well, what can we do about it? You didn't know. I didn't know. Carson didn't know. How's the SEC going to handle this? They're going to come after us. How's the DOJ going to handle this? They're going to come after us. Like, well, even if we're just I, I telling mean, I think the truth. This is a, you know, for me as a lawyer, one of the first things I did was just to kind of look up how short sellers and how the case law was shaking out. And here's where I think. You, and there was nothing there, right? That's not true. There, there was a bunch there and it was all Andrew. It was a lot of it was Andrew left. Well, some of it was, uh, some of it was Asensio, which wasn't good. Uh, well, many stuff though. Remember, involved the uh, involved uh, Finra. It, it was with did, the bro- was with the brokerage, right? And there was one more before that that uh, Minkow, Barry Minkow. Yeah, but he wasn't really he, he <laughs> that guy. You want your you know what that guy was doing, right? Look, I'm just telling you this much. I paid white glove law firms a lot of money, right? And I was like, give me a legal opinion. Can if, if I know what I'm saying is true. Can I publish this? And how is uh, the SEC or the DOJ going to view it? 
And they would go back and they'd be, come back and say, uh, it's a gray area. That'll be $20,000. Like everything I fucking asked them I think was an answer in the middle do. and a $20,000 bill. Yeah. Lawyers do not call balls and strikes like that in when some, they have no incentive whatsoever to tell you it's okay. There's only right. downside. Right. They will always, they, they are, right. the, the profession is structurally incentivized to, to, to not sign off on something like well, that. But I, I had, Ma- clear, I though, had Maj the- and Matt had you. That's how it fucking worked out. I guess I didn't have a lawyer. Well, well, no, but we, we also like, you know, spoke to, spoke to counsel as well. I think what they say, they said, as long as you tell the truth and as long as you disclose your, your position that it's, that it was protected. But, but a lot of that, remember, this is why I said we are a little bit of a debt to quite a bit of a debt to, to Andrew, because I think a lot of that precedent came out of Andrew's work in like the nineties with like stock lemon and then Citron. Well, that was, it was actually the early two thousands, but yeah, with stock lemon. Yeah. Or maybe, yeah. Two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, well, and look, look, if we're going to go all the way back there, there's, there's Cahotis. Yep. Uh, there's Mark stuff too. Yeah. But the, you know, no the, the overstock precedent yeah. is not. Yeah. That was amazing. It's, that was like, I, I've got to, you know, what's crazy is that Mark does, you know, I've had you on here because you don't do a lot of podcasts and, and, and you've been phenomenal. I'm, I'm loving the conversation, but Mark does them a lot. Uh, but nobody asks Mark about, you know, Copper Ridge and, or, or is it Copper River, Copper Ridge? Or? Copper, Copper River. I think. Yeah, Copper River. Uh, and, and the early days of these fights where he and his former partner, David Rocker, Rocker Partners, right? Yeah. And how that ended. But they were like, I, they were trailblazers along with Andrew, no doubt, no doubt Andrew was. And, and Andrew loves a fight. There's, you know, if it's one thing Andrew can do, he can engage in a legal battle. And when this whole thing was going down, most of us didn't want to be bothered with a legal fight. Andrew would step up and say, Hey, fuck you. Sue me. I will eat your face off. Literally. And that gave him an edge. Cahotis wasn't around when, when this happened. I don't know if he was no. lick, licking his wounds or what, but he was around 10 years earlier. And, you know, Emmanuel Sencio, no doubt. And, you know, God bless you, Emmanuel, but you're fucking nuts. Like to this day, you just, uh, and then there's the Fesh box. They also were, were doing this in the nineties. Uh, and it was through reporters. But there still wasn't a lot of great case law, you have to say, Soren, right? I would say, so. yeah, that's that's probably fair. Not in New York. There wasn't any in New York. No, but there was a ton of uncertainty. But also, you have to remember that, that like, how did stock research get disseminated in Wall Street for 100 years before the 90s? It you was leaked shit to a reporter. It was through a brokerage or reporter. Yeah. And, and it was, so, so there's this democratization of, of investment opinion, essentially, that happens with the proliferation of some of these message boards, these stock websites, and just the ability to kind of reach your audience directly. So, so whereas, you know, for generations of Wall Street previously, 
almost all stock analysis is done sort of privately or you pay for it or you go to the local, you know, you go to the corner and your Merrill Lynch broker kind of tells you what they like. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden you had this opposite problem, which, so of course there's not real like, you know, case law developed because the notion that like gifted amateurs or like in, you know, one man shops could have this broad reach and effect on the market just wasn't the case for for decades and, and really until the probably the early 2000s and the late 90s. Yeah, I would I would agree that was that was our take when we started to see that we were wrong and the the China bubble was a fraud and you know, we went to the investment banks and we tried to say, listen, by our research you don't want to represent fraudulent companies, which was <laughs> a total mistake yeah. cuz like whoops. Yeah. Why do I want to pay you not to collect a 10% transaction fee? And the same thing with law firms and, and, and wherever else. And they, they threatened to sue us as well. Um, so, yeah, that became the issue. And then you and Matt, though, so as far as you and, you and Matt getting together, you end up getting together, right? You, you're, you said, let's do this. We're going to call it, you know, C-slog. And... Your first report was who? The first report was Universal Travel, but but there was a little bit of movement up until that time. So after Carson's orient paper report, you know, then he has where where I agree with you. There's a there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, we're watching it, but there's a ton of uncertainty as to as to how the market, how regulators are going to react to it. But even but even you know how the market is going to is going to treat this type of independent research. Um, and then there's Rhino. And I think with Rhino, it was a complete fraud. It was so obvious yeah. and he completely it nails very, it. Yeah. yeah. And, but I think the one for me, I don't know if you remember this one, but one of the ones that was so compelling was the China Biotics. Yeah. CBIO. Yeah. And they had like, there was the yogurt shops. And this is kind of a, it, it's, it's funny now considering the level of work that we do in each idea of what you had to do back then. But you know, it was, Oh my God, dude, literally, I mean, literally they set up a website and they went yeah. to like the hundred yogurt shops where yeah. the company said they were operating yogurt shops around four main cities and like 90% of them didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. We thought our investigators were geniuses for finding the most obvious frauds ever. Yeah. And, and, and this likely informs, I mean, like, I don't know if you've thought about this a lot, but I've thought about it a bit was there's a reason that guy, you know, that, that a lot of the guys that we consider sort of peers in the space, you know, myself, like you, Carson, um, you know, Ben, like even guys like, like Sam, a lot of so us came Ben Axler, Sam, uh, Adranji, uh, uh, of course, Alfred Little, which is John Carnes. Yep. John Carnes, Alfred yeah, Little, yeah. and then, you know, Sam McCaresdale. Yeah. And, and these, you know, a lot of us came, started in that era. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's also a function of just how target rich the in the environment was just how mm-hmm. many like actionable frauds there were in this era of the RTO space, which they touch on, I think a lot in the, you know, in, in the film is how most people are familiar with it. But having, you know, having lived it and having in 2010 you know, and 11, yeah. you could not throw a rock in China and not hit a fraud. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And And the companies that were listed in the United States were 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 the worst businesses they really were and so you know i think that watching china biotics watching rhino you know i remember the time i remember when matt and i kind of decided to do our first idea together and 
and I think, you know, he was burned out on Roth. We were, we were snowboarding in Tahoe and, you know, I had to get up at like four in the morning on like New Year's, New Year's day or New Year's Eve to go turn some documents for this just awful thing I was working on as a lawyer. And it was just, you know, it was this, this moment where I was like, I just have to, I have to try something else. Like I have to do something. And Matt and I were, were talking about working together and we've seen these reports. And for me, I didn't think it was going to turn into a career or a business. I had, you know, did not have that foresight at the time. I, I just looked at it as like, okay, here's something that if I do one of these, you know, if I, if I build my own high impact or our own high impact investment idea, it's something I can use in these interviews to finally get over the hump and, and show that I, you know, I do understand the markets. I, you know, you should hire me. I think that was the, that's what I was thinking. That was the motivation. And Matt is a hell of a pitch man. Yeah. And, and I think Matt had his kind of own, own reasons. And I think he wanted to, he was, you know, he was burnt out. He wanted to go do something different. So yeah. we, you know, we agreed to do, we agreed to do the first one. Um, but we didn't do anything right away. I think that like, it was still, it was, we, we, you know, we, we, I went back to New York. Um, Matt was driving back to his house in Newport beach and his house burned down. And so what? what, what as, hold on. Yeah. Yeah. Stop. Stop. So hold on. <laughs> yeah. His house burned down. Yeah. So there was a fire and he took it as That's a how that happens. God that he should go to Argentina. Um, <laughs> he should go to Argentina. Yeah, so he went down to Buenos Aires, uh, which is very, which is very Matt like. Yeah, at the time, and and no, I it's, went back it's to very Matt like today. Go ahead. And we had kind of agreed that we were going to work on it, and you know, having been a lawyer, been and 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 doing a lot of like international transactions and kind of like working with like local counsel in different jurisdictions and stuff like that, I kind of knew, you know, who who we could call and 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 you know, what sort of documents were sort of publicly available because they were used in, in all sorts of M&A and private equity, um, you know, due diligence. And that was pretty helpful because when we, you know, were looking at things like the SAIC filings, which Carson was, was using at that early stage, it was something that from like a, from a process standpoint, we were pretty, we could, could become pretty familiar with pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, we just kind of let it languish. I'm not sure that we kind of believed I'm not even sure that we believed in ourselves as, as much at that time. And then we, you know, gradually we start working on it and, and, and I'm working on UTA. Like I still, this was kind of like a, like a side project that I was going to do in order to kind of spruce up my, my, my interviewing. And, you know, I remember just, you know, blasting through the filings and, and usually that I would be working on this stuff between the hours of like when my regular job was over. So between the hours of like, 10 p.m., 3 a.m. was when I was kind of work um, on Glauca's stuff. Mm. And we we pulled the filings. And, you know, as you can remember in back in the day, like I feel like Hempton, Hempton had done work on John Hempton for, for those of you listening, Bronte Capital. Um, yeah. In Australia, John had done some work on universal travel, which showed that the website was hugely problematic. And it wasn't working. And this was the first name that we decided to look at. Um, the stock had basically kind of come back to where the point when John had kind of written about it. But Universal Travel was a company that was, you know, pitched itself as an OTA, which is an online travel uh -huh. 
agency, right? Like Priceline or Kayak right. or something like that. And so the idea was that it was this hugely fast growing um, plot, booking platform for hotels and um, hotels, flights, train tickets in China. They had a partnership with Agoda. And one of the first things we did was we, we paid a guy about a thousand bucks on the other side of the Great Firewall to just book, just book a flight or two on that side of the, and, and film the UX. And what was immediately clear was, was that, you know, this company that had been claiming to do hundreds of millions of transactions, all of the transactions, the links were broken, the website didn't work. And, and very similar to what John had previously found that, that, you know, if you tried to book a ticket from New York to LA, they would make you pick the ticket up in Los Angeles. Well, no one's going to do that. Uh, especially <laughs> with like real functioning OTAs out there. Seems, seems logistically challenged. Yeah. So there, we, we, that was kind of the initial first step on the DD. And then I remember kind of working on it, like just, it, it had all the red flags and, and now looking back, like it was, you know, it was an education in a lot of ways. We're kind of self-teaching how to, you know, what short sellers look for. We had an instinct for it, but we were really paying attention to what other people were focusing on in their reports and what other funds were looking to do DD on. And we kept, you know, I kept coming back and back to, to this, you know, and basically kind of had a Eureka moment. And it was, I think I was like lying on my desk at like, one in the morning, I was just completely miserable, totally burnt out and, you know, going nowhere, completely unhappy and thinking about this. And do you guys remember the William Shatner ads from like, I yeah. think he was the Priceline price negotiator. Yeah. He yeah. still mm-hmm. might be. Yeah. So th- the ad came up on my desktop computer and I just remember it popping up and all of a sudden I had this like eureka moment, which is like, you know, how do these OTAs drive traffic? To their website, especially the ones that are consumer facing, right? They don't have, they don't have any dedicated, like loyal business platform. It's, you know, most people are price comparison shopping and a lot of people on these sites are price sensitive. So they, so it's all about this advertising. It's this William Shatner moment. And I decided to look at UTAs at how much they spend on advertising expenses in a year. And it was like a hundred thousand dollars. And so it just couldn't. And when you compared the the advertising spend that UTA was doing to what other essentially normal platforms that were you know claiming to book a similar revenue, it was just a it was just a fraction. It was it was completely obvious. I think what, at that point was that were, similar to what Hampton was saying. It should be said here, like Hampton was a first mover in this space as well. He had for sure, yeah, for sure, and we got to give him a ton of credit for it. Yeah, for you sure. Know, John is a John's really gifted, you know, on the short side. And he was a, I think, as I recall, he was more focused on the UX and kind of how the website didn't work and how it was very unusual, but, you know, and in, in also in John's way on his blog, like he's not quite as, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit academic. He's not quite as like forceful. So he's not and quite as succinct. I think the stock had really rallied back because people, you know, they had looked at John's blog, but they weren't quite sure that it was applicable to the overall business or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, whatever the reason, it was kind of our, you know, it was kind of our opportunity. And, you know, did you guys, I mean, were you guys, were you pulling, we didn't, I'm not sure if we did on the ground work for this one. Did you guys do on the ground work? Around well, that time? Oh, don't even get me fucking started, dude. This, this, this isn't about me. <laughs> yeah. If, if it was, we had pulled 
deer and CCME in July of 2010. Oof. And the numbers were so off. Right. By such a degree that we didn't believe the actual SAIC numbers were just like this, this can't be right. And so it ends up that Carson and, and, um, uh, Andrew take down CCME, which was the big takedown, right? It was, it was after, it was after Rhino even. And I remember people after Rhino saying to me, well, okay, there's, there's, you know, ONP, there's Rhino, but if CCME is a fraud, then I'm out. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, oh, if those SAIC files are right, but I, I, we just didn't know. We didn't, we didn't trust it and we didn't want to be wrong. And people don't understand even to this day how important it is for us to be right. And, and the links we go to, to not be wrong the accusations well, I, I think that's a get. totally misunderstood part of what we do, right? It part really of the is. Profession. It you really know, when is. people look at short sellers, they say all sorts of nasty, terrible things. But you're right. The most common thing they say is, oh, this guy will fucking say whatever he wants oh. and, and don't believe him. And it's like, first of all, if it was that easy, we'd do, we'd do it a little more frequently. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's it, exactly it completely, right. completely misunderstood. The, the lengths that a, especially someone who plans to be activist or plans to kind of talk about their investment opinions with the market will go to, to, to really, truly understand a business and, and, and really dig into it. And, so, and just the process, like I would put our process and your process against any long fund. Oh, for no, sure. oh I, uh, any long fund, no fucking doubt. Short fund, yeah. no fucking doubt. But what it gets compared to that drives me insane is an investment bank analyst. And I'm just like, Oh my God, they are so inside baseball. They, they totally are in on it. They know that if they give a negative rating, the bank's not going to get the next deal. And if you just look at like, like the, well, I think the well, I evidence, think it's important too to, sorry. I mean, I think it's important too, because you know, maybe people listening, you know, we know this argument yeah. so well. Mm-hmm. But we should probably spell it out for people that are not, that are maybe listening for the first time that, you know, that say investment banking analyst is okay, or why do you guys think it's, you know, useless? And, and, and the reason is the financial incentives, right? right? Well, well, it's supposed to be like, first of all, we should tell people like, legally speaking, legally speaking, there's supposed to be what's called, no pun intended, a Chinese firewall between the investment banking side and the analyst side in that they're not supposed to influence each other in any way. Total fucking bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's bullshit. But I, I think that you can, you know, you can, the, the way, the way that I think that you can characterize it is a little bit that how do investment get, banks get paid, right? They don't, they don't get paid for the research. They get paid for the investment banking fees. And in order to right. do that, they have right. to bank IPOs or transactions right. or companies that access capital markets. They're the right? dating service that Carson said they are. Yeah. And, and I think that when – my problem with investment banking analysis is not that it's, you know, they're essentially captured and heavily incentivized to only say positive things. And, and, it's, and it's more skewed than that because they're actually the most incentivized in cases where companies 
access capital markets the most frequently. And, th- and that's an incredibly dangerous dynamic because companies that are frequently accessing the capital markets, as you know, are, right. are a little more likely to be right. you know, highly problematic or even sometimes frauds or have huge accounting problems. So it's this it's it's an area of the capital markets that deserves the most skepticism where investment banks have the highest incentive level to, you know, just be overwhelmingly positive and 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 not be conject- conducting sort of real objective analysis. But you know, if, if if people didn't think of them as objective analysis, right? I think if people thought of them as like shills for the company, by and large, which would that solve are. the problem? Which they are. Like the problem is not that it's biased research. The problem is that it's biased research that people by and large cite as unbiased research. That's an interesting question. Well, like look, if they just said, hey, we get paid by the company, our whole business model is to say positive things so that we have access to management and deals. Look, you just look at the empirical research going into uh, August of 2008, nine, nine and a half out of 10 uh, investment bank analysts had a fucking buy rating on every fucking stock there is going into the crash. That's not changed today. That's the same no, it's today. It's probably even worse today. The, the average retail investor doesn't, doesn't understand that. They, they see that analysis from, you know, uh, and they look at that as, okay, they're saying this is a great company. And it, in a way, it's, it's almost a, a, a way of deniability for them. They don't want to know the details. They don't want to know that the analyst is getting compensated or, or, or tied to uh, promoting that stock in, in essence. Yeah, I think I, I think you're right about that. Um, but so- but I, I, let's not like let's not like romanticize necessarily like the as well like the retail investor that that you know Dan you, I, you and I have totally different opinions on this I know but we you know I I also look at the retail investor in in some cases as being also like a you know an equally greedy biased market participant it's not like they're you know they are you know do do they not know that 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 bank analysis like you know is not objective no they don't they, know they that don't. And, and no they don't know that they don't that's probably right they probably that's and, right. And, and and we don't disagree on that part of it where where we might disagree is i think it is our job to protect them as 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 many of them and their day jobs protect us uh, the the person that changes the brakes on my car takes that job very seriously because if they don't, I get in a wreck. But at the same time, they have a 401k, they have an IRA. And if I don't take my job seriously in protecting them, then they're going to get in a wreck. And I run into this problem with short sellers. Like they don't care about the retail market so much or those people. And it fucking infuriates me. And it takes me back to my days of growing up in Flint and, and, and with that general motor shop worker who is the salt of the earth, working their fucking ass off. They have carpal tunnel by the time they're fucking 28 years old. And it's all to make sure that everything works well for us, but we're not making sure in the financial markets that everything works well for them in the end so that they have a life to retire on and, and, and 
be financially taken care of. And it's where I've gotten into those situations with other shorts where it's it's almost gotten to physical violence. Unfortunately, it hasn't yet, but I'm hoping one day. Um, it's not so much with you, but I don't think they're greedy. I think they're ignorant in the non-pejorative, truly yeah, sense I think, of the word you know, I think ignorant. I slightly a little like paternalistic. Maybe, right? Well, whatever. I think, like, What's wrong the, with being paternalistic? Like, it's, you know, I, I also believe, and I think that it's really important to believe what we, to, 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 to be a short seller. I think, like, one of the things that's really misunderstood about it is that there are a lot of easier jobs out there. And a lot of the guys, the people that are, do this successfully over the long run are absolutely financially motivated. You know, you want sure. success, you want sure. to make money. Sure. But there's there's also a there's an underlying current of of not only justice but but importance of value to the market, value to society. Agreed. And that and that and that is a way that we can, you know, that 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 gets a lot of us through some of the hard nights that you face from time to time. Yeah, but where's the empathy? Well, I think the empathy can be there. Um, but it's what what did Fitzgerald say? Like the the test of a first rate intelligence is the ability to have two inconsistent or opposite ideas in your head at the same time and be able to function. So I think that you know, kind of having these two inconsistent, not even inconsistent, but you can have, you can still be biased and still be right. You can still be financially motivated and also at the same time have, you know, have a broader conviction that you are important in doing the right thing. That we agree on. You know, I always think it's so funny when when they're like, well, you get paid to do this. It's not that, you know, you, you know, they try and undercut the the value of someone who's, you know, one person standing up in a room of 99 and sharing something that's like totally different. And they're like, well, you get paid to do that. That's not like, you know, that somehow undercuts the importance of what you, you know, contribute to the markets. And, you know, I I just never sort of felt that as a, I always felt that's a complete cop out. Well, I think we're talking about two different things now. I'm talking about, I agree with you that like the truth is the truth and there's nothing else that replaces it ever. But there is this empathy for people. Look, you know, I've had those people. You you maybe have had them too that have, of course. have kind of yeah, showed of course. up and said, like, I fucking hate you. You've, you've ruined my life. And, and it's because you cost them not a billion dollars like we maybe cost an opportunity dollars for that next China RTO fraud, but $3,000 that meant so much to them and their family. And they really can't get any reciprocity or justice from the real criminals in China. So they want to take it out on us. And you can either ignore them and say the markets are an at risk environment or you can say, look, let's sit down and talk about it. You know, let's let's figure it out together. Uh, I'm sorry for what happened, but here's the truth. And that's all. Those conversations go pretty well for you? In the end. Now, when it's an anonymous dickhead online, yeah, that never ends well, right? And, and Yeah. I mean, yeah. look, I think that, 
I, I, I also believe exactly in what you just said. And I believe if investors and if long, you know, it, it, like there's, there's an old saying that no one likes a short seller until you actually meet one. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's true. I think that like, you know, when, 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 when people are talking about their good faith opinions and they're, and they're talking about, you know, things that not only they care a lot, but they've invested a ton of time and money in, um, and just, just hard as nails, like, you know, like we do just the process to try and, uh, Oh, it's tough. It it's really tough and it's a grind. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when there's a, when there's, there, there can absolutely be an understanding and, and that's why, you know, we're, we're often happy to have conversations with, with anyone who, who shares the opposing viewpoint. I mean, that's. So you do that too. Like when people like will call. No, I don't. I mean, it's cause it's never in that context. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I've had people call me if they, if they bother to like get through and call me, which is, I'll freely admit right now that that's much harder than it was uh, 10 years ago to, to call me, but you probably could back in the early geo days where our office number was listed and some people would call me and they'd be like, you know, I, I remember one guy on, on, on Longway petroleum. And he's like, I, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor in Beverly Hills. I have millions of dollars. I'm going to fucking sue you into non-existence. <laughs> and I'm like, what for? <laughs> Well, you want to tell me what you're going to sue me for, for lying. What was I lying about? Was I lying about the, you know, 70 days of time-lapse surveillance I had on this factory that showed that they were not producing what they said they were producing? I mean, and, and even that conversation ended better where other than I did have to tell the guy, you're never going to get your money back. Like in the, in the world in which we live in now, I think that those conversations are a little bit more, more rare than well you can't get a hold yeah. of me anymore so they are more rare <laughs> you know do, do you think that you think as a society we're less dogmatic or more dogmatic than we were i would say absolutely oh, right, listen that's a whole nother fucking conversation but, it's a whole nother, but it also kind of informs what we you know what to some extent what we do i mean like the the notion that you're going to sit down for a beer or a coffee with with someone who's just like abusing you online and sending you death threats and and all this stuff. I, well, I never had a beer or a coffee with any of these guys that I'm talking about, but if yeah. they're, if or they're willing like, to calm but, down and have a conversation, so am I. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. But I mean, it gets back to like what exactly is we're talking about. And I think that what we're talking about is we're, you know, I, I view it as a marketplace of ideas. And when we're writing a report or a short idea and our, we're talking about what, what my opinion and what our idea is. And, and what makes a market is is ideas that are different and ideas that are contrary. I don't think that you know there's there's that clash of ideas which really is kind of the driving force between you know I think price discovery, efficient markets, all this stuff. I and agree. yeah, that's there's true. this misconception that short sellers, you know, or or even investors in general kind of have a report and it's like Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments. It's like no, this is what I think based on the work that I do, and you're. Right always free to think differently. And in fact, that's what makes the market most of the time. Even, even when I'm, I'm taking that time-lapse surveillance, right? It's my opinion of what that time-lapse surveillance says. Exactly. I'm not even calling that empirical. I'm just saying this is my opinion of what it says. But exactly. you and Matt had done UTA um, and then you went into 
many, many other things. L&L Energy was great. Um, you veered off into Hong Kong in a very big way. Like you really crashed some companies in Hong Kong. Uh, what what took you to Hong Kong? Was it like your experience of being there when you were a child and your family? No, I and- think it was, I mean, you know, take a, can we take, take a step back before we get to that part of the, mm-hmm. before sure. we kind of get there, I think it's, it's important to kind of finish up UTA and just because it kind of sets the table for what we, you know, the decisions that we made, but when we released our report, right, no one knew, you know, you probably, I don't know if you experienced this, but you guys had geo and you had a, you know, a real long platform. When we did our first report, you know, I remember taking, you know, it was just our money that was invested in it. And the first, I mean, in the first few hours, I don't think it worked. Like nothing, nothing happened. It kind of fell flat. No one read it. Um, And the funniest thing I remember was that night as, you know, being from Canada, obviously I'm going to go play hockey. So I went, I went and I played uh, at the rink in Central Park and I just got a stick like right across the face. It happens like once a year, it just kills. And I had this like hugely swollen fat lip. And it was just a physical manifestation of, of just the universe, you know, of just not going well and not, you know, you're just like, wow, I just got completely beat up today. You know, this really didn't work. It wasn't the platform that I thought it was going to be. And then I remember the next morning I was going to stay home from, you know, the office. I was going to go in. I just remember Matt calling and being like, look at the price, look at the price. And I'm just like, oh, we're excited. I think I had like seven missed calls and I'm sitting there with my fat lip being like, oh, you're good. This is fucking awesome. We're good. How much? It's like, you get a great reception for it. So how much was it down that next morning? Man, I don't, I, I think it was down probably like 15 to 20%. I, I, I remember that it was down a bit. It, it, it was down, it was down a little bit, but I think that, you know, one of the, obviously one of the issues was our first time. No one knew who we were. And, you know, I think it took a little bit of time to circulate, Um, but the evidence was just overwhelming. And I think within, you know, three weeks was their annual report or their, at least their annual results announcement coming out. And they delayed that, which was basically the kiss of death. And then their, their new auditor, which was their fourth auditor or something in five years quit. Kabani. And then, (laughs) It was Wendy's actually. It was not a Cavani one. It was Wendy, but Wendy's had not signed off on the books yet. So they had gone through like this, this, the same thing that you saw with all the RTOs. All of these guys were set up with, with just total no name, small firms in, you know, random places in the U S with no China offices, no ability to audit the books and records of a Chinese company. And they were just signing off on, on the audit statements. And so they, you know, the notion of the auditor as the gatekeeper, which is what a lot of people, I think, mistakenly believe in the markets. You know, we talk about some of the misconceptions out there of like the, the investment bank is the source of objective analysis. It's not true. Right. But another huge one is the notion of the auditor is kind of like the benevolent gatekeeper or like the watchman, um, you know, protecting. And, and of course, that's not the case. So, you know, every, every fraud that has ever collapsed has had an auditor. Right. Um, well, that's the Jim Chanos line, right? Like, you know, exactly right. When somebody asks him who the auditor is, he's like, who cares? Who cares? It doesn't that's fucking matter. Stolen right from Jim Chanos. For right. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, Got to give him that. Um, oh, hell yeah. So, yeah, then you end up in Hong Kong, which is 
you guys kind of pioneered Hong Kong a bit, you know, I mean, did more than anybody else I can remember there. Um, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I, because remember though, like we, the, the, the first year of like everywhere, like everyone else we focused on, you know, there were so many just reverse mergers trading in the United States at like just, you know, valuations, which were just, you could just invest in the short side. We really focused on the RTO space, but going into December of that year, it was pretty clear that that space had really been picked over. You're talking about 12, you're talking about 2012. Yeah. Like early 12, late 11. Right. Yeah. Because we did LLEN in the summer and then we did, you know, this company, China medical, which was just a fantastic story. CMED that, you know, I think they closed a bond deal and, you know, investigators later found that, you know, there was a $400, million bond deal. And the next day, like 400 of it was wired to a casino in Macau. Why not? And then, right, where the chairman's wife was playing, I think, I think million dollar slots. She was on a roll, bro. She was on a roll. Just, you know, like if you're going to steal $400 million from the public markets, like, come on, don't just play million dollar slots. Why not? Like, like, it just seems such an unsatisfying uh, ending for such a, and not even elaborate financial scam, but you know, that was a crazy one. So you, you guys, you guys worked in Hong Kong for a few years, you and Matt did. And then eventually you kind of both went off on your own. Matt Weikert, we're talking about, um, and in all disclosure, Matt's a friend of mine too. He's a good guy. Um, you know, I don't speak to Matt like I do Soren, but like, you know, I like Matt. Uh, we met, during the process of the filming of the movie, um, he and his leopard skin shirts, <laughs> Matt silk. It was, it was silk. It was, it silk. was it's it was actually silk. not even his. They actually belonged to his girlfriend. He stole them from her. Uh, that we, we accused him wow. of that. <laughs> Absolutely. It is. Oh, that's fantastic that we were right. Like right from the get go. Cause Carson and I were, it's a women's shirt. Yeah, we were just fucking so. just destroying him. Like from day one, it's it's at the East Hampton Film Festival, and we're like, "What the fuck are you wearing, dude?" That is why it shook him. He didn't, you know. Carl Carl was there for that too, uh, and and Matt was uh, extraordinarily quiet that weekend because you know, I mean, like there were some real alphas there and some machine gun fire going off, and every once in a while, Carl, I mean, uh, Carson and I would get into an argument and make everybody uncomfortable. Cause they were like, you guys got into an argument? No way. We, we argue all the time. Like, and people are like, are you guys friends? <laughs> yeah, we're really good. Um, so eventually you and Matt broke up. Is it, is it a true story that the breakup finally ended? The last straw was that you were tired of him using your, your fucking hair product. <laughs> was that it? <laughs> no. That's that's not accurate. Oh come on! You guys came to work every single day, and you're like, "My hair's better." No, my hair's better. They, they no. took turns brushing hair. They really did. Did he use your brush? <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> no. And there, there was hesitation. no one had an argument because we know who's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you something. Um, I, I talk. <laughs> I, I talk to Matt every once in a while, um, a couple times a year, and you and. Something that's that has struck me about your breakup. Neither one of you talk shit about each other. You, I mean, and like you and I are friends. Like, I mean, like, 
you could, you could, and I would not even bring it up today if you did. I wouldn't bring it up, and and that would be like between you and I, but neither one of you guys talk shit about each other, and I think that's a terrible intro into asking you what the fuck happened, <laughs> <laughs> but really, it, it's the truth. It's my truth, but what the fuck happened? Oh, man, we got we to gotta save some material for, uh, for another podcast. I don't know if I'm, if I'm ready to. You know what? You are not a giant whale, Dick. Yeah. Okay. All right. That might be right. That might be right. <laughs> that might be right. You know, I, I'll let it go. I will hey, let it go. But at least I don't have charybdis, huh? There you go. <laughs> Do not, <laughs> I, I don't know that. That's not been proven. I've not seen the test. I want to see that on your COVID test. All right. So that's fair enough. I, but you and Matt went your separate ways and you started blue Orca. You've been really successful with blue Orca. And I, I, I've said this, it's not because you're on the show. It really isn't, but you and Carson are the best writers of the bunch. I think, I think Reed is coming along with, with my editing and 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna throw Hindenburg in there now too because I think yeah Nate, Nate's Nate, a, dude yeah, Nate's Nate. a Nate's a really good writer you know there there's I I think that you know Reed you're kind of learning the craft I think like you know what's your you know we think about what our job is a lot and I don't know what your thoughts are on this guys but you know is what makes a a good invest you know a good especially an activist investment so much of the the, the activism is kind of the uh learning how to effectively kind of communicate your ideas and that's it is. it's it is. it's hard and and i think that like people you know you you know i'm sure you and i have read ideas we've looked at ideas where you're like wow this, this is was simply just managed a little everybody's bit everybody's fucking head and you don't know who your audience is yeah because that really legalese kind of writing that you grew up with that you've been able to like bring down to an understandable level uh is very very important no it's it's an exercise we do all the time at our firm which is which is simplify the thesis which is if you can't take a complicated concept distill it into a couple sentences and make it crystal clear even if it's hard then then do you truly understand it And, and that's a conversation that we have all the time which is simplified, like e- e- the simplest questions. How does this company make money? Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a two page answer and it's super complicated and it's very long winded and it's got a bunch of caveats, then, then I'm sorry, you, you, you know, you don't get it. And, and so much of what we do is just cutting, I think, to the fundamental concept of just these simple questions and answering them, not only understand, answering them, but also understanding them in ways that are really. Yeah, but the you know, simple compelling. questions that need to be answered are so often written in legalese in the form of a 10K or a 20F and you have to boil down what matters. Yeah, I think I think we're basically saying the same thing, that if you just like try and write a report at 20F or 10K, then you're above everybody's head. Yeah, you're above everybody's head and... I see so many of these reports, and I'm not going to name names, 
someday I might. But they try to jam so much on one fucking page. Or, in contrast to that, they try to say fraud 10 times in the first page when it's really a material misrepresentation. Uh, or they're not. I think that's right. I, I think that's the worst habit that I see. Yeah. Is especially among people that are just starting out or like people that are pretty inexperienced with short selling. They just like use the F word or they over sensationalize the evidence. And, 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 and really so much, I think, of the credibility because you have to, you know, you have to remember that so much of the, a lot of your readers are arrayed against you from the beginning and they're, they're reading it. You know, it's not like they're necessarily coming at it from like a, an objective search for truth. The more sensationalist and the more you sensationalize things, the, a lot of times I think the less credible your idea is. I, I, I totally agree. Well, look, I, you know, you know this already. I love your work. I'm a fan of your work. I'm a fan of your success. Uh, I, I, I do, I do like it when good guys win, believe it or not, even if they, you know, have great hair, uh, (laughs) and, uh, and there's been, you know, breakups over that. And, and what do they have? What is that called? Crotitis? Charybdis. Charybdis. Yeah. Even if you got a raging case of Charybdis. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you have a raging case of Charybdis. I think you're an awesome guy. I think you've done a great job. Thanks, I think uh, I can't wait for your next report. Um, there are times where I actually will trade your report, which is very fucking rare. Like, you know, when somebody <laughs> puts out a report and I'm like, okay, let's. This is a very small group. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. Uh, so because usually it's down 15% before, you know, I get to look. I mean, the algorithms pick it up and it's boom it's gone and but i know i know yours is good so i wish you the best and and i wanted to congratulate you because even after your success you've recently gotten married i well yeah relatively recently three years is that right no has that been three years hold on a second Oh. <laughs> Everybody has to know here. Everybody has to know here that Soren just got up and closed the door to his room. I just uh, closed the door to my to my home office, which is uh, any married guy will tell you self preservation right there. Yeah. Well, um, I listen. I had no idea it was three years. I mean, because you know where I'm going with this, right? Because this is you had. Like you, you were making some pretty serious money and when you left and then you started Galakis and you had some success right away and you had some serious money. And then you and I, you had this, this girlfriend you were just madly in love with and you're going to get married. And I think I was one of the first ones that's like, Hey dude, are you going to get a prenup? You have to tell me, did, <laughs> did you get a prenup? You know, so yeah, we could talk about all of that. Um, okay. The, well, is yeah, we could talk about all that. Yes, I got a prenup, or yeah, we could talk about all that. Yeah, absolutely. So, for all the kids listening at home, get a prenup. It doesn't matter who you are, get one. Oh, you got and, a you got a prenup. Yeah, we, we we definitely got one, and and it wasn't out of you know, it wasn't like a like a spiteful. My my parents, you know, my parents like a lot of parents. Okay, they, they got divorced, and you know, kind of growing up, you witness like a really. You know, you Bro, you're you, not you trying to get me to sign a prenup here now, are you? 
because it sounds like it sounds like you're trying to get me to sign a prenup now. (laughs) No, but Reed should definitely do it if he's not married. (laughs) Obviously, you assholes talked about this on the phone a couple weeks ago. No, 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 this is not the case. No, but please, that's not true. Tell me, how did you go? How did you approach it? So, here, here is how we approached it from a very early stage in our relationship. We Abs- I absolutely said, look, like we're going to, I'm going to have a prenup. And, uh-huh. you know, even from the first few months of dating and my wife is like, you know, she makes fun of me this day about it. She's just like, what a, what a presumptuous shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. What a, what a guy. The yeah. notion, you know, the notion that he's already like, yeah, you, you know, we're going to need a prenup. That date, I would- <laughs> by the way, it's, it's very romantic. I'll say that. It's super romantic, but in a very mature way, it was the right thing I think to do because as long as you know, from, from my perspective, you know, I saw my you know, saw my parents divorce, and I was just like, never want to do that. And I was like, look, if you if you don't want to get a prenup, we're not getting married, and we can continue to date, and that's cool. Um, and we can, you know, there, there wasn't like a get out of get out if you don't want this, but there was really, you know, we had to talk about it, and it was a really good talk. And, and so I think I'm, I'm, earlier saying, you established guy, that that's like this guy says it was a really good talk. Are you telling me there was no, there was an, a, absolutely no point where her or anybody close to her was like, "Hey, man, just so you know, you're a dick." I mean, no, it became a complete tire fire. But that's for like, <laughs> 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 yeah. of course so, it but, did. But when when you it, guys it, met, when you guys met, you already had money. You're fairly. Well off, well. No, no, I mean, I think either would be a little overstatement. No, I think. Look, we were comfortable already, but it was more than that. It was like, so there's two reasons to get it. So the first one is, regardless of whether of of what station you are financially, the reason to get a prenup is that in the event that you get divorced, if it happens, God forbid, it is a very clear document about how you divide what exists uh-huh. and. And whether or not you have a lot or a little, you save yourself hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal expenses and a shit ton of pain and suffering by simply setting out before a marriage in the event that the worst happens, how we would approach that. And that's why I would say it doesn't matter what, where you are in your career. And, uh-huh. and people can have it for a variety of reasons. Like they can say, look, like I built something on my own and 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 I think that I should get the full benefit of that if something were to happen. Or people might say, look, like, you know, my family trust or my grandparents left us some money that can go to the kids, but it can't go to, you know, and I think that that's a, it's a mature conversation to have regardless of where you are. That's the first reason. Let me tell you, let me tell you both how this really goes down. Okay. How, how a real fucking baller handles this shit. All right. And my prenup. All right. This is how it goes down. Listen, bitch, sign this fucking thing right now or we're not getting married. And then I did what she said and I signed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you got it done, Soren. I mean, yeah. so- somehow you got it done. There's a tire fire in there somewhere, which I think would make this much more interesting because I don't really ever believe that this was like, hey, look, yeah. let's have a rational yeah. discussion and the kids and blah, 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 and sign this here. 
I it, think it, there, it was it was it was that way absolutely. But my uh, I think somebody was, threatened to cut your throat. Yo, yeah, for sure. But we're getting to that. We, 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 it's it's like a Tarantino movie. It's a slow build. We're gonna we're gonna build up to the violence. We'll get there. Don't worry about it. So, Soren wasn't or isn't your father in law uh, an attorney as well? So d- d- he was a fantastic plaintiff's lawyer. Oh, geez, and, that helps. <laughs> oh, yeah. And and not only that, he was a specialist in the type of medical malpractice that were cases that often were just the nastiest. And he was a, he was fantastic at it. And he, where our, where our discussions really went off the rails were, you know, instead of handling it, the two of us, you know, we just, I decided to, you know, he said that uh, he would handle. We decided. The, <laughs> he decided that he would handle the negotiations on behalf of his daughter. Oh, awesome! Like, uh, like there's no bias there. There's no bias there, and that was it. Went about as badly as you guys can imagine. I mean, like I think I sent the 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 first draft, and the wedding was canceled like for a while. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it was. I think I get like three words out. Yeah. And she's like, fuck you, yeah. I'm out. How was Thanksgiving that year? <laughs> Awkward. Oh man, it was the, the, the relationship was just like irreparably changed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Speak of the devil. Hey. Oh, uh, 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 door got slammed on us. Yeah, you can you can come in. Come in to we're, say we're, hello. We're actually, the guys are asking us about uh being married, man. How are you? <laughs> What's it like being married to this guy? I, I have my headphones in. Uh, they said, how wonderful was that as a mind person? Am I the luckiest thing ever to happen? Did you ever tell her what and all means in Finnish? Um, <laughs> great answer all right we're gonna Perfect. leave it there uh look it was uh it was great meeting uh your your wife uh hopefully we'll meet in person i know we planned on doing that before covid19 hit and uh we'll get that done at some point it's great talking to you i really look i thought it was a fantastic conversation soren guys i really enjoyed it too thanks for thanks for making it great and uh, I can't wait for people to hear more from you about you because they're going to uh, see what a wonderful guy that I think you are. Thanks, guys. Bye. Take it easy. All right, folks, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe at wolfpackresearch.com or with your podcasting service. And follow us on Twitter at Wolfpack Reports. That is Wolfpack Reports on Twitter.